Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Drinking Risks Get Trickier to Tally by Josh Zumbrun. Then Nidhi Subaraman has an article, Scientists Succeed in Getting Cold Drugs Pulled. Kiara Carter wrote, Check In to Zonk Out. Then an article, The Quest to Recover. And we'll follow that up with an article by Rich Cohen, We Never Really Escaped the Gym Class Draft. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one. Drinking risks get trickier to tally. A number of readers were surprised by my recent column that mentioned regular drinkers might have a lifespan as much as seven years shorter than non-drinkers. Haven't many studies over the years suggested some benefit from an occasional drink, especially against cardiovascular diseases? There are a number of reasons why drinking shortens lifespans, and one of those that we have lost track of is what a drink actually is. Long-standing United States alcohol guidelines assume that a standard drink consists of just 0.6 ounce of alcohol. That is a 12-ounce beer with 5% alcohol or a 5-ounce glass of wine with 12% alcohol. But over time, Americans are drinking larger and boozier beers and stronger wines and getting heavier pours at bars, all of which deliver more alcohol than the standard drink. This has troubling implications for health. We are drinking more alcohol, just as many epidemiologists are lowering what they think the safe level of alcohol is. One of the big challenges of alcohol research is how do we define the basic metric of a drink, said Priscilla Martinez, Deputy Scientific Director of the Alcohol Research Group, part of the nonprofit Public Health Institute. How do we help people understand what that metric really means? A number of trends have contributed to the growing alcohol content of a drink. You get a couple 20-ounce craft beer cans and think, I had two drinks, said Martinez. In reality, in that setting, you might be closer to four standard drinks, she added. Martinez has found that between 2003 and 2016, the average alcohol percentage of beer, wine, and spirits all rose. The climate might be partially to blame. The online wine database LiveX has found warmer growing seasons are producing grapes with more sugar and thus wines with more alcohol. The alcohol in the average Bordeaux red wine rose from 12.8% in the 1990s to 13.8% in the 2010s, with California reds increasing from 13.7% to 14.6%, and reds from Tuscany up from 13.7% to 14.2%. Blame generous bartenders, too. 
In one amusing study, researchers were dispatched across California bars to order beer, wine, shots, margaritas, and mixed drinks such as rum and coke. Each drink's alcohol content was then discreetly measured using graduated cylinders and beakers at a relatively private table or in the bathroom. Nearly every drink contained more alcohol than a standard drink, some nearly twice as much. But this isn't the only reason drinkers die sooner than non-drinkers. The widespread notion that modest drinkers live longer than non-drinkers and heavy drinkers is what researchers call the J-shaped relationship between alcohol and health, which dates back to Johns Hopkins University research during Prohibition. The idea that is that drinking a little bit might protect your health relative to not drinking at all, but as consumption goes towards excess, health outcomes get bad and then very bad. In 2017, a team of researchers in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology found mortality risks are somewhat lower at as many as roughly six drinks a week, then get worse. By 13 drinks a week, about two drinks a day, risks are rising quickly. The J-shaped curve remains controversial. People who abstain from alcohol entirely might be different than the general population. They may have illnesses or be on medications where they're advised not to drink, for example. It might not be modest drinking that makes people healthier, rather people who drink modestly when they're already healthy. A study in JAMA Network Open, an American Medical Association journal, analyzed 107 studies of different cohorts of drinkers and concluded that, properly measured, there are no significant benefits from modest drinking. The entire notion that there's a healthy level of modest drinking could be flawed, said Tim Stockwell, one of the co-authors and a scientist at the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. There's not two camps, said Stockwell. It's a continuum that's distributed according to how much we drink. A number of health experts similarly rejected the J-shaped relationship and contend that less alcohol is always better. Earlier this year, the World Health Organization declared, when it comes to alcohol consumption, there is no safe amount that does not affect health. The latest United States Dietary Guidelines, released in 2020, advise that drinking less is better for health than drinking more, and urge men stick to two drinks or fewer a day and recommend only one drink for women. New guidelines are under consideration for 2025. Regardless of whether there's a safe level of alcohol consumption, another problem is that many people underestimate how much they consume. Responding to surveys, people claim to drink only about half as much alcohol as they purchase based on sales data. Some glasses of wine don't get finished or an extra bottle lingers in the fridge, but researchers agree there's no way that people are buying twice as much alcohol as they actually drink. And it's the self-identified modest drinkers who tend to underestimate how much they drink. People are often drinking more than they realize, said Stockwell. 
When you look at it in the cold light of day, it stacks up. The disagreement over whether the J-shape exists is only about the very start of the curve. Everyone agrees that risks start to rise quite quickly as drinking increases beyond modest amounts. Life is about more than absolutely minimizing mortality risk, of course. You would be safer if you never got in a car too, yet sometimes it's worth leaving the house. Sometimes, for many people, it's worth celebrating with a drink. Still, even while celebrating, mind your drink sizes, or you'll find yourself dangerously far along the curve. And now, scientists succeed in getting cold drugs pulled. When Leslie Hendeles walked into his neighborhood drugstore this week and learned that a common cold medicine was being pulled off the shelves, he was stunned. The news affirmed a decades-long quest to steer consumers away from a drug that he long believed didn't work. Hendeles, a retired professor with his friend, fellow pharmacist and University of Florida professor Randy Hatton, have spent nearly 20 years following the science of phenylephrine, an ingredient in more than 200 over-the-counter decongestants. Last month, following a petition from Hatton and Hendeles, an advisory panel to the Food and Drug Administration weighed studies examining oral phenylephrine's power to unblock sinuses and clear stuffy noses and unanimously determined that it wasn't effective. CVS Health, one of the nation's biggest pharmacies, told the Wall Street Journal that certain medicines that list phenylephrine as their only active ingredient were being pulled from shelves for good. Oral products that include phenylephrine as the only active ingredient include Sudafed PE sinus congestion. Pharmacists were telling us this doesn't work, Hatton said. Over two decades, the duo amassed evidence that backed up their conviction, and they drew attention to the issue from lawmakers, health agencies, pharmacies, and their customers. Approved for use nearly a century ago, phenylephrine is listed as an ingredient in pills, syrups, and liquids, such as Advil sinus congestion and pain, Flonase headache and allergy relief, and Dayquil cold and flu. But studies over the years have shown that it is not more effective to a clear nasal congestion than a placebo when taken orally. Scientists believe that is partly because almost all of it is inactivated in the gut and liver before it reaches the bloodstream. Hatton, 69, and Hendelis, 80, have patiently broadcast that message. Since the mid-2000s, they have together written spiky commentaries in scientific journals, published reviews and studies, petitioned the FDA directly twice, and told anyone who would listen that what has come to be the most common ingredient in over-the-counter decongestants don't work as oral drugs. The men were outraged that oral phenylephrine's reputation was, as a dud was well known among pharmacists, yet cough and sinus products, including phenylephrine pills, generated billions of dollars annually in sales. Hatton became immersed in the data in 2005 after the call started pouring into the Drug Information Service at the University of Florida. 
A law passed that year severely restricted most over-the-counter decongestions because they contained a different ingredient, pseudoepinephrine, as an active ingredient. That left a few products easily accessible to customers and a contained phenylephrine as the active ingredient. Hatton, who was director of the center, remembered. Doctors and pharmacists wanted to know, did it work and at what dose? Phenylephrine had been green-lighted for use in over-the-counter products by the FDA in 1976. Hatton wanted to find all the data that supported that choice. At Hatton's request, the agency sent piles of paperwork, copied pages of typewritten studies, including eight unpublished studies. Hatton, Hendeleys, and their colleagues wrote up their findings. They also sent their conclusions directly to the agency. In 2007, a majority of the advisory panel that examined the scientists' petition agreed with the need for more evidence. The evidence arrived over the next decade. In early 2023, they heard the agency's advisory committee on over-the-counter products would consider their argument. When the committee voted in September, Hatton felt at peace. Hendelies felt like their work was paying off. The agency hadn't issued a decision, but a month later, Hendelies heard the first products were coming off shelves. I was flying high, he said. And now, Kira Carter, check in to zone out. When I heard that a new crop of hotel and spa programs had emerged with sleepless travelers in mind, I was intrigued. I was one of the many people who, at the height of the pandemic, started losing sleep, and I've been charging forward without dedicated rest ever since. As I write this, I am six months pregnant, wrapping up one of the most high-pressure projects of my career, and have just returned from two decidedly non-restful trips. In search of a sleep-focused staycation, I look close to home. The team at Equinox Hotels, which opened its first output in New York City in 2019, spent two years working with experts to create temperature-regulating mattresses, soundproof walls, and a program of wind-down exercises for its rooms. Meditation videos come preloaded on the TVs, and a sleep well menu include drinks with imbued, imbued with ashwagandha, a substance that purportedly improves sleep, and charcoal. Ditto. If that doesn't knock you out, you can raid the health-centered mini bar for CBD and magnesium cream, or pull out the yoga mat and fold into a child's pose. Chris Norton, the CEO of Equinox Hotels, said his teams primarily focused on making rooms cool, dark, and quiet, the holy trinity for quality shut-eye, according to the National Sleep Foundation. Sometimes you turn off hotel lights and you find yourself with 20 little blinky red, green, and blue lights attached to the TV, he said. At Equinox Hotel, one button turns your room pitch black and the air conditioning system doesn't clunk in and out all night, Norton said. I had to know, could, I, could a meticulously designed hotel room actually improve rest, or was I about to be duped into forking over nearly $1,000 for yet another sleepless night? 
For nearly double that, Equinox Hotel also offers a two-night package that includes cryotherapy and sound wave treatments. But in in search of a quick reset, I booked just one night to try out the hotel's supposedly sleep-optimized rooms. To maximize my soporific odds, I assembled my own sleep program to accompany my stay. Based on advice from Eric Prather, a sleep psychologist and professor at the University of California, San Francisco. We're not like laptops where we just turn off, Prather said, suggesting a two-hour buffer before bed where I do activities that are slightly positive but low arousal. Exercising, a warm shower, breath work, a light dinner, and not having late-in-the-day caffeine can all help bring on the Sandman, he said. So, after I checked in at 2 p.m., I went for a swim at the hotel's pool and ate an early fish dinner. Both nice, but as I crossed the items off my to-do list, I had the feeling that I was overcomplicating basic decisions. Do I really need to get one of the wellness drinks on offer? Can you even have activated charcoal when you're pregnant? That's when I remembered something else Prather had said. The more you work at sleep, the harder it gets, he warned. The secret is indulging in these restorative offerings without having super high expectations. Think of them as a kindness you do for yourself and don't put on so much pressure. As evening approached, I let go a bit. After dinner, I went to Little Spain, a food hall, and brought a chocolate torta, a choice that was theoretically unwind given chocolate's trace caffeine content, but, I rationalized, emotionally sound. I took a spontaneous walk, justifying it as the slightly positive but low arousal activity Prather had recommended. On my way back to my room around 8 p.m., I saw the hotel restaurant bustling and wished I had made plans to meet a friend instead of striving for sleep with such militant vigor. But my plan dictated I be in bed by 9.30 p.m., and I still needed to take a hot shower and follow the guided meditation and stretch routine on my room's TV. These to-do proved worthwhile. When I shut off the lights, I did not obsess over what I did and didn't do. A rarity for a brain that often rethinks every email from the perch of my pillow. I was out in less than 10 minutes. I stayed that way for nearly nine uninterrupted hours, about 50% more than on my last trip, and felt springy on my morning run. Now home, I try to keep up with the wind-down routine, which is posted on the hotel's YouTube page. Some nights, I skip to my favorite stretch, And other nights, when I'm out with friends, I fall into familiar sleep-sapping habits, like looking at my phone before bed. But even in those moments, I try to be kind to myself and relax, even if it involves a little chocolate. And now, the quest to recover. Strendy new tools pledge to soothe tired, worn muscles. We asked experts for a reality check. This is by Todd Plummer. If it seems like you can't open up Instagram without seeing videos of people taking cold plunge baths or rolling their quads with 
medieval-looking deep tissue devices, it is because recovery has gone mainstream. These devices, designed for and once exclusively marketed to serious athletes, are now being pitched as necessary tools for inconsistent weightlifters, 5K runners, the unserious pickleballer, and even pet dogs who can barely be bothered to play fetch. Sports medicine experts aren't entirely convinced. Recovery remains a relatively new area of interest among doctors, said Jordan Metzel, a sports medicine physician at the Hospital for Special Surgery in Manhattan. Many of these tools, he says, probably aren't the missing piece average exercisers need. Some merely trigger frustration or could even cause harm. We asked him, as well as Joe Moynihan, a doctor of physical therapy in Boston, to weigh in on whether the following recovery gadgets serve an essential purpose or are part of a trend they hope will pass. Number one, Hoka Aura Recovery Shoe 2. The promise that these sneakers plush, pillowy cushioning will soothe tired feet that have been put through the ringer. The experts take. If it feels comfortable after a big workout, then go ahead and wear them, said Metzl, adding that he knows of no evidence that such sneakers help anyone recover any faster, but doubts they have any negatives. Number two, Roll Recovery R8 Plus, The Promise. That clamping an appendage between the two cylindrical inserts and using the handles to roll the device down can help get blood and lactic acid moving. The experts take. I like massage guns because you can control the pressure with how hard you're pushing, said Metzl. These, however, function more like vice grips for your arms and legs, he said. It is harder to adjust the device's dial which is located far from its handles, than to modulate a massage gun. Number three, hyperis hypersphere. The promise that this vibrating orb, an update on the tennis ball people use to work out kinks, will penetrate deep tissue and ease away knots. The experts take, it's not as percussive as a, as a massage gun, said Moynihan, plus it rolls around. People end up chasing the ball more than they end up using it, she said. Number four, Orvis Recovery Zone Dog Bed. The promise that two layers of memory foam will distribute your pet's weight more evenly than most dog beds, reducing pressure on joints and muscles. The experts take, there is no evidence this is necessary, but that might not matter. I would spend anything to make my dog comfortable, said Metzl. And now, Rich Cohn, we never really escape the gym class draft. I was never picked last, or even second to last. I take pride in that. When the captains were selected and the teams chosen, I always stood off in such a way, off to the side, but not too far to the side, that I appeared at once ready and aloof. Here's what my body language said. Yes, I can help you, but please know that even if you don't take me until after Dennis, even if you take me dead last, you cannot hurt me, for my kingdom is not of this world. Such were the brutal days of the gym class draft, which in my life ran from third grade to high school. 
It began with a phys ed teacher, either a sadist or an adult too lazy to do his job, who named captains and leave them to assemble teams for kickball, softball, dodgeball, floor hockey, or flag football, one player at a time, meat market style. After having been the subject of perhaps 500 such drafts and chosen everywhere from number one overall, that was the day we had girl captains, thank you Stephanie Rowe, to 18 of 22, here are the questions I asked myself 40 years later. Were those auctions the source of all my problems, the insecurities and panics, the angers and paranoia that still haunt me? Were they the cause of my occasional drinking binge, meditation retreat, and need to write? It's the sort of alienation you experience in junior high school but feel forever. Being just another number among a pool of available picks, you see yourself, maybe for the first time, through the cold eyes of an appraiser. You are no more than a body in the mind of this person, an object with too many deficiencies to catalog. Chubby, knock-kneed, weak-armed, timid, poorly coordinated, scared of the ball, slow. You will also fear yourself for the first time, trapped in a body, isolated from even your closest friends, of whom you may think, oh dear Lord, as 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 bad as it gets, As long as it takes, let them be taken before him. What's worse, you know that you're being judged on all the wrong qualities, in all the wrong ways. Yeah, I'm slow, you think, as round three gives way to round four. I can't throw very hard and I don't move too quick. But there's one thing I know how to do well. Kick ass at dodgeball. The practice of the gym class draft has been phased out. As long ago as 1993, the New York Times headlined the story, New Gym Class, No More Choosing Upsides, because it traumatizes kids, separates them, and leaves a mark on their psyche. But as with all practices born of convenience, the human draft continues on playgrounds, where kids compete in the absence of adults, and it continues in disguise, the college application process, the LinkedIn job hunt, the search for a soulmate online. It's the gym class draft pick again and again and again. The feeling of randomness, being misunderstood, underestimated, and judged for all the wrong reasons. We will never get rid of it because it's a pure expression of the human condition. In such a world, maybe it's better to restore the real gym draft. Maybe it's better to face it and learn to overcome it in the same years that you are learning about the Declaration of Independence and human reproduction. After all, you only learn to disregard the draft and, better still, turn it to your advantage once you've suffered it. There is opportunity in being underestimated. The kids who get picked first are usually all the same. They are as big and golden and and flavorless as the first apples of autumn. It's the naughty and the gnarled, those who need a few more weeks on the tree that are the most delicious. When you arrive late, you arrive without expectations and with just the right amount of anger needed to surprise them all. I will not quote the Gospels, but I will quote Bob Marley quoting the Gospels. The stone that the builder refused will always be the head quarterstone. 
That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.